Hi friends, it's Sarah again. Thank you for joining me for the final part in our exploration into the poltergeist phenomena. Rounding out with some parapsychological theories, tulpas, and one of the most famous British poltergeist cases, the Black Monk of Pontefract. Now next up we're going to talk a little about Carl Jung's exteriorization phenomena. There is a famous anecdote which you may or may not have heard that involves both Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and it takes place in the April of 1909. Now Jung was much more open to ideas of the paranormal and parapsychology than Freud was but he visited with Freud so that he could hear his views on the subject particularly his views on precognition. Now, while Freud was arguing his piece, Jung reports feeling a sensation in his throat as though it were growing hot by some unknown force. At this point, it is said that the bookcase next to him gave such a large unexplained bang that they both leapt to their feet with Jung exclaiming, there is an example of a so-called catalytic exteriorization phenomena. In Jung's mind, this effect had come from him, and when he predicted another crash, and there was another crash, it seemed to prove that this rejection inside him, this disagreement that started between him and Freud, had started that fire in his throat that caused the loud crash that they both heard. Now, of course, there are many issues with this story, one being that Jung's telling of the events comes from an interview that he conducted 50 years after the fact. And the years, obviously, had had a long time to work on his memory and his ideas on causality, whether him being the cause and the bash being the effect, or it had a long time to sort of work around that and weaken the strict bond between what he thought was a cause, i.e. his big emotional reaction to his friend's denouncement of precognition and the effect being this huge bang that he thought he had exteriorized but Freud's rebuttal of the events was actually contemporaneous with the events so he right off the bat stated that the bookcase that they were talking about that the large bang emanated from was in fact one in another room two was often making loud creaking noises and that Three, he was initially also taken in by Jung's conviction in this case. He was taken in by how much Jung believed that he had had an effect in this sort of cause-effect relationship. But when Jung left him, the effect somewhat faded after time. With all these thoughts in mind, we are now going to discuss one of the most famous poltergeist cases, the Black Monk of Pontefract. Now, this case involves a typical sleepy British town, on a housing estate, complete tree-lined streets, friendly neighbours, and it seemed to be the classic poltergeist case, playing out in Pontefract Council House uh, that was, by all other accounts, just astoundingly normal. It did everything a poltergeist does normally, recalls Pat Holden, son of Renee Holden, sister-in-law to the lady most plagued by the disturbances at the time, Jean Holden. Jean Holden is our focus in this case. She seemed to be locked in a constant battle between herself and the spirits. 
to keep her house in the fastidious order that she wanted it to be in. Continues Pat, I say normally, throwing things around, freezing rooms down, creating water puddles and making noises. And he did a lot of unique things as well. Now Pat was too young to see most of these occurrences himself, but he has since turned the tale into a film when the lights went out. Pat clearly had his doubts about the whole situation. After all, there were multiple mysterious occurrences, such as water puddles mysteriously appearing in formation on the kitchen floor, or eggs apparently being transported from a locked box to smash themselves on the living room carpet, bites being taken from sandwiches, jam being smeared on door handles, and some of it is just so laughably petty when I read this list it's hard not to laugh at some of them but he sums it up such when interviewed for the BBC I'm skeptical myself he says but my mum and my auntie were very down-to-earth working-class people when he's referring to his auntie he's referring to Jean as we said the sort of locus of this poltergeist phenomena they were very ethical and moral and they were quite religious The idea of them making something like this up, I just can't imagine that happening. Also, it's not just their word for it. There were so many other people who saw it firsthand. The mayor went round, the police, they had psychic investigators, friends and family. So many people saw it. It makes you think there's a good chance that it must have happened. They can't all be lying. So Pat's account passed down through his family gives us a lot of information here one it sets up as we said the kind of quintessential poltergeist case you have got the council house inhabited by otherwise regular normal people you have already the community bought in as third party observers but bought in with the guise that there is something strange happening in this house And then again, you have the repeated testimonies for people who self-assuredly say they do not believe in making up this kind of thing. But it may be that the community was experiencing an ideal situation for this false idea of causality to really take root. There are aspects to the story that add up to an idea close to what we were talking about in terms of exteriorization phenomena, that it may be playing out externally a lot of the tensions experienced in the household internally. Now, in all accounts of the haunting, the events were said to have been first noticed by Philip, the adolescent son in the household. He was staying with his grandmother as the rest of the family holidayed in Devon, falling out badly with his father as he reached the age when going to Devon with his family lost its charm and he preferred to spend his time reading, listening to music and spending his time on his own. Immediately we have our point of tension. We have our very familiar adolescent in the picture. Our quintessential poltergeist is starting to form. Philip is the first to notice the disturbances and bring them to the attention of his grandmother, So he comes in from the garden one day and noticed that the kitchen was filled from chest height upwards with a mysterious powder, kind of forming similar to a mist. There is quite a strict 
band where this powder obscures vision, and underneath that there is nothing, there's pure clear air. Some of it sets down into her cup of tea. Now, if I were to ever publish a book on British hauntings, an image of this dusty teacup would 100% grace that cover. Now, the family eventually returned and are surprised when the disturbances they initially brush off, as described by Philip, continue. Now, it wasn't just this situation with the dust. There are other instances of fairly typical poltergeist behaviour and affecting small objects around them. But as said, they were all quite surprised when this continued. And it continued with some of the more typical behaviour. So banging, loud banging in the middle of the night, bedclothes being ripped off the beds. The family lived a few doors down from some of their extended family. And when this occurred late in the night, the mother and father of the household thought, right, this is enough. Let's come on, get someone else in to have a little look. So they popped down to their in-laws, their brother-in-law more specifically, and he came around to have a look at the disturbances. Now, family, friends, all manner of neighbours, all made up this suffocating but close suburban neighbourhood. You couldn't really go more than a couple of doors down the street without meeting someone who knows you and knows your family and your family life. As noted, Jean Holden kept an incredibly clean house and she was most annoyed, most perturbed by the constant need to clean up after the poltergeist's messy disturbances rather than the fact that she was apparently being plagued by a paranormal entity. As noted by Wilson in his coverage of the case, it may well be this hard-headedness that spurred on the behaviour as each mess seemed to be freshly renewed as soon as she was done cleaning it. In this community, where each door holds a relative or a friend of a relative popping round to check out your disturbance and the disturbance seeming to oblige, it is easy to see immediately how the lines of truth and illusions could start to blur here. One of the first paranormal investigators of a kind was the previously mentioned Renee Holden, mother of Pat Holden, whose account we've been hearing. Renee Holden was summoned around and was quick to give the phenomena which had annoyed Philip and his grandmother from a practical point of view. After all, they were convinced of some serious scientific explanation for the dust cloud, which they weren't sure of, but they were sure that it was a strange scientific phenomena. But Renee came round and she refactored it into a paranormal experience. And once the entity that was plaguing them, once they had sort of codified this into an entity and named it Frank, all manner of behaviours were attributed to him, from bites being taken out of the sandwich, curiously manufactured scenarios where egg boxes were locked up and sat on by a family member in one room, only for the eggs to apport in the next room and smash on the carpet. Frank was given opportunity after opportunity to prove himself and consistently did. So all of these manufactured scenarios, the effect that came out of them was like a positive hypothesis. They hypothesized that he would be able to do this and over and over again he did. And over and over again, Jean proved just how house proud she was. And the incident provided a whole community of people something to rally around as each came round to visit. The mostly friendly Frank 
and devise experiments for him. Now, I can immediately imagine something enticing to this atmosphere, this popping around for a cup of tea, just in time for him to set on his regular as clockwork 10pm crashing spree. Now, it is true that it is unlikely they were all lying about what they saw. But as the incident grew in scope and fame, I can imagine there was more pressure to explain it all. And explaining it as a kind of exteriorization of Jean's desire for control over her household, desire for respect maybe, or boundaries that community constantly infringes upon, or desire for community. There are a lot of tensions at work here. There are a lot of reasons to perpetuate this kind of meeting and these kinds of behaviours. This was, as mentioned, a very typical council house, like complete with the little picket fences, tree-lined streets, the lot. It was an environment where everyone knows everyone, yet every house is pretty much the same. There is a lot of pressure in one way to conform, but there is a huge desire in another way to stand out, to be somewhat unique. But I think it's more likely that, like Freud, they were kind of taken in by a desire to believe in these incidents. And that maybe the family are relatively quiet on the subject now, as the sort of rosy glow around it fades and is less persuasive. As with Jung, you can imagine, at the time of his exteriorization phenomena with the bookcase, it all seemed to make sense. It was a very persuasive argument. But as time went on, even as in one way it probably convinced him of this strict cause and effect, there would have been something in his mind that just was less persuasive over time. And I wonder if now that the family are not experiencing all the same desires and tensions that they had, if the incident doesn't hang together quite as well in their mind as a strict poltergeist phenomena. Even so, I thoroughly loved reading about this incident is just so particularly British is like a little snow globe of 60s Britain just shaken up and I love it. Now we're coming to the end of the ideas we're going to be exploring today but we are going to have a slightly deeper look into parapsychology which is a term that I have brought up multiple times but I think we could do a little bit more detail on it. Now, there is a particular name, again, that comes up in relation to poltergeists often, and that name is Nandor Fodor. Nandor was a parapsychologist who led the investigation into poltergeist phenomena in his lifetime, and he shapes how most view them to this day. Now, I have been leaning on the ideas that he pioneered and the theories that he put forward throughout my investigation such as theory that poltergeists are external manifestations of conflicts within the subconscious mind, as we were just talking about with the Black Monk of Pontefract. I should mention as well, as I didn't, the name Black Monk of Pontefract was kind of fleshed out over time. So eventually the entity was given a name, Frank, and one of the investigators who came in to look at the situation put forward a little bit more ideas and then eventually this idea of him being a monk came to being and this idea of being plagued by a monk or a nun is so common in 
poltergeist cases. I don't think I've really mentioned it here, but again, it just adds to the fact that this was such a by-the-numbers poltergeist case that it's it's so interesting. So as I mentioned, Fodor really believed in this idea of poltergeist as external manifestations of conflicts within the subconscious mind. So this is distinct from the idea that they are spirits or some kind of autonomous entities with minds of their own. He was the first to seriously codify the idea that they're a result of human stress. Now, as much as I agree with this purely grounded psychological part of his study, I want to talk about sort of the wider implications from this when it pertains to the paranormal. So his ideas of psychokinesis and the potential of the superconscious. So the extension of the psychological viewpoints that we can see value in and how they extend into the parapsychological. Now, there is an Aldous Huxley quote that is used by Colin Wilson to illustrate some of these ideas. So the quote goes as such, Is the house of the soul a mere bungalow with a cellar? Or does it have an upstairs above the ground floor of consciousness, as well as a garbage littered basement beneath? Now, in Wilson's view, the idea that this superconscious self could explain some of the phenomena of paranormal research the idea of an extension of our psychological theories that are kind of bread and butter for how we think about people and their personalities nowadays, the idea of the conscious self, which is mostly under our control and in our cognition, the subconscious self, which kind of houses our desires and our base needs, but is not actively or easily access through the conscious brain so they posit maybe there is something above this maybe there is something above the levels so if we go subconscious conscious could there be above this a superconscious? and if we could access somehow our superconscious selves could we have more of control of the world around us Now, just as we've learned that there are ways to, in fact, kind of bypass this conscious brain, such as with Ouija boards or dowsing or this sort of autonomial response, that in some cases the unconscious brain can seem to take over. Now, the question then follows, if this superconscious brain existed, could we somehow unlock and gain access to it? Now, one of the most famous and indeed given the task of being the de facto scientific explanation for poltergeists, is PK, pyrokinesis, or the acronym Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, or RSPK. RSPK, as we've just mentioned, is an uncontrolled and unconscious ability to move and destroy items with the mind. So it's put forward that perhaps psychokinesis could be an unlocked ability from the superconscious brain. But as Alan Gould points out, just having a scientific-sounding acronym for so-called recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis doesn't mean we are any closer to explaining the phenomena. And in fact, it goes some way to obscure just how rare this behaviour is, even in paranormal and poltergeist phenomena but it is a potential explanation 
Now, there is a particular case that was expounded on in Nandor's book, and the subject in time was named Mrs. Forbes in his book, or more wildly, Mrs. Fielding. So as you may have gathered, this is not her real name. This is just a name given to her for this case. Now I'm going to go with Mrs. Fielding. And at the time of the case, she was a young housewife of 35, and she was living with her 17-year-old son. And everyone who seemed to have been involved with this case described this lady as attractive. They could not talk about this case without saying how attractive this lady was. Now we can only assume that they picked out this notion of her attractiveness to highlight the fact that the assumptions around this case very quickly led down a psychosexual route and not the other way around. So we can only assume, like I said, they they picked this out for purely scholarly reasons to bring out the fact that people approached this from a psychosexual viewpoint. I don't want to imply that maybe they came at it from a psychosexual idea because they found her hot. I think it's just, I like to stay on the side of science here and just say it's just just a coincidence. But the disturbances started in the usual way. So they started with glasses being smashed, innumerable egg cups. (laughs) I think I'm reading about it. There was an instant where at least 24 egg cups were destroyed, 24 of her own personal egg cups. Now, I have never lived in a house or in a situation where I've ever needed close to 24 egg cups, so it stuck out in my mind. But anyway, the disturbances started in the usual way. So they started with glasses being smashed, cups and saucers being destroyed. And these behaviours, crucially, continued under witness from the local police. Now, when Fodor arrives a few days later, he quickly records another 29 incidents of small items seeming to be snatched from people's hands thrown across the room. But interestingly, in this case, Mrs. Fielding, not her adolescent son, was thought to be the focus. She was taken in for observation and under lab conditions, it was witnessed several items seeming to be transported from where she left them at home. All of the items involved were of specific significance to her and all of them were her supposed personal effects things like photos or her hairbrush. Soon she was said to be experiencing psychic projections and finding herself projected back home or to her bedroom to do mundane little tasks. But just as she seemed to have unlocked an extension of her unconscious desire to transport her effect to her, such as apparently psychically stealing a souvenir elephant from a shop on one occasion... But just as she'd apparently unlocked this extension of her unconscious desires, she also unlocked some extension of her fears, such as experiencing hysterical blindness and feeling stalked by a great animal she described as accompanied by a zoo odour. It did seem that just as unlocking access to the subconscious had its blessings and curses, unlocking this idea of what we could call the superconscious was not without its downsides. Now there is a question if some of these downsides are due to the fact of her being primed with the idea that this was a poltergeist from the beginning. She came to believe that there was an entity in this case that was bringing these items to her at her request rather than her being the compelling force, that she was being transported by a kind of projection on her vision instead of by her own will and under her own fancy. 
at a seance, the entity was questioned and also claimed to be the spirit of the grandfather materializing some of Mrs. Fielding's things that she claimed used to be his. But it's not clear, one, if this is true, or whether she just wished to believe it was, and the entity was there, benevolent to her. Now, is this one of the rare cases I've talked about where the individual actually has a background in the occult? Now, as a child, she was said to have lived in a house known to be haunted and was described by those around her as accident-prone, impulsive, and plagued with illnesses. And Nandor believed her to be, whether substantiated or not, as a victim of childhood assault since consciously repressed. But as mentioned, there are countless times where this effect she seemed to have on the world was witnessed under so-called scientific or strict lab conditions. So if you are at all interested in a case where the hysterical mind seemed to have consistent, baffling effect on the world around it, this case would form an excellent basis. But as you can see, it is all a matter of perspective. And depending on your viewpoint in this case, the cause and effect can be very easily flipped. No one in this case is a truly objective third-party observer. I would just like to make that very clear. Everyone has their own emotional bias and emotional reasons for believing things one way or another. That's part of the reason why some of these cases are so hard to explain, is that how do you take the human out of this kind of behavior? How do you take the human out and objectively see the truth? You can't. But whether she was plagued by a spirit and her mind reacted to it, or whether the spirit was a form by which to interpret a mind with overreaching powers, it's up to you. But it leads me on to our last potential explanation, because otherwise this will go on forever. So tulpas, the idea of tulpas and thought forms. Now, in the early 1970s, Members of the Toronto Society for Psychical Research decided to test their hypothesis that ghosts were a product of the unconscious mind. So they decided to test this by setting out to try and create a ghost if they were a product of the unconscious mind. Could they, by effort, create one? Now Philip was the ghost that they invented and they invented a backstory hitting all the usual notes of witchcraft, suffering, and repressed sexuality. Now, it took a few goes before their seances got any answers, but eventually they celebrated because they were contacted by Philip and excited by the fact that they seemed to have tricked this mechanism of their unconscious mind into creating him. But does this thought form created by the investigators become something more than a trick? Some have suggested that they may have created some kind of thought form similar to a tulpa in which a roaming spirit could take possession. Tulpas now are most known as a paranormal or mystical subject, but it has its origins in the Tibetan term for the dimension of ceaseless manifestation, a kind of mind-made body, adapted in the 20th century by theosophists to describe a being or object created through spiritual or mental powers. 
I am sure I am not the only person in the world who first heard of tulpas in reference to creepypasta. I'm talking specifically brony creepypasta. But the gist of the idea goes similarly, no matter what sort of fandom or what kind of context you're coming at it from. In general, the story starts with an earnest wish to have a real friendship or relationship with either a character or an idea of a person or being. So in the sort of fandom sense, this would start with someone wanting to have a real friendship or a relationship with a character from their favorite show or franchise and learning about a process to create a thought form of them known as tulpomancy. Of course, sharing a linguistic root with necromancy and sharing the idea of forming communication with a realm outside of the living, but more specifically, this idea of giving life where there previously was none. The tulpomancer practices and commits themselves to creating a more and more detailed mental image of the character or entity until they form an existence and personality of their own as distinct from the person who created them. The creator can then interact with this thought form with its own distinct consciousness and personality, but still at this point it is under their control and they are able to dissolve it just as they are able to resolve it. So it naturally goes with the creepypasta that the thought form expands in how it can interact with the world and grow stronger until it is no longer under any control of its originator and can no longer be destroyed. Now, despite obviously having a very different starting point than this My Little Pony kind of tulpa, Philip the Ghost could be viewed as a kind of tulpa in that it was created under the specific scenario of a group of people trying to convince themselves of an entity's existence when they know themselves to be the one creating it. They were aware of it as a work of fiction and made pains to flesh out its image and embellish its mental description to the point it seems to gain some kind of power as the result of a collective energy and group effort put into creating it. We can even argue that those creating it had just as much genuine interest in seeing it come to form as would the earnest creators of tulpas. It's not that they are lying to try to trick themselves, more they believe in the great creative power of human consciousness. This is one of the many ways people have sought to think about the power of collective mental labour and its potential uses and dangers, and I would love to cover this in more detail in the future, but I will finish off by summarising some points in reference to poltergeists. Now, not all poltergeists we've talked about are evil or even mean-spirited, There are some that have been friendly, producing small gifts, running small errands for their hosts, as with the case of Mrs. Fielding, apparently bringing her objects of great sentimental value. They can lend faith to the idea that money poltergeists may start off at least as friends, and may be either the result of someone wishing for a helper, or an extension of a kind of imaginary friend. As mentioned, children are often the first and only people to see poltergeists in human form. As we've also mentioned, poltergeist phenomena always grow in scope 
They never start off powerful and become less so. They tend to start off with few powers and they build upon them and build upon them until at one point the behavior just stops altogether. There's very rarely a tapering off and they never start off at their most powerful and lose power over time. So this lends weight to the idea that they may be a being that over time develops its skills of manipulation of the world around it or that it may gain something by the wider belief in its existence that as more people are brought into this poltergeist myth they may gain some sort of power and therefore their powers of manipulation increase. As mentioned we have this pattern of behavior that starts off fairly innocuous but can quickly fall into destructive tendencies bordering on bodily harm but never going beyond that again implying that at the very very foundation of it there is some sort of human control in that there's like a control switch in this thing meaning it can't harm its creator but it may fall into destructive habits when it is no longer and under any kind of control or if it seems to gain more cognizance about itself. Now, poltergeists are usually experienced by groups of people, and their myths and personalities are built up by those closest to it, i.e. their personality is developed by a group mentality. They are often seen as as flawed as their human counterparts, implying a human or close-to-human personality and self-consciousness. So it was with Philip. It took time for the researchers to make contact, even with regular attempts at seances. He seemed to ga- slowly gain the strength to make the raps and taps we associate with the start of a poltergeist haunting. Again, I think this subject warrants its own discussion, so I'll be sure to come back to the subject, but for now I would like to touch on something very closely related the idea that poltergeists may be spirits simply finding an appropriate free form in which to embody. We could think of the poltergeist if we believe in the idea of the spirit whose form comes from the context from which they're expressed. I'll flesh that out a little bit more. There may not actually be an inherent set of characteristics making up a poltergeist. It may be that it finds its words and its form coming from its background, be that demonic superstition, UFO encounters, or the idea of the unresting dead. We are inclined to imagine that our human desire to make sense of our experiences and weave them into existing narratives could transform a poltergeist visitation. After all, many of the interactions are vague enough to fit a wide range of potential explanations and hypotheses. But if we submit to another idea, that poltergeists in fact harness errant energy from living beings, this idea as mentioned of this loose football, then we can imagine it more like an elemental life jumping into a thought form of perhaps a child perhaps someone already interested in the occult or spiritual beliefs, someone with an idea of the poltergeist, and the entity simply takes this idea and makes it whole. Again, as we've mentioned, children are often the first to report poltergeist activity, and they 
form the center of so many cases that cases lacking children or adolescent involvement are statistically rare. But it is not true that poltergeist cases are more likely to happen to those interested in the occult. So we can't say that poltergeist in itself is a readily available form laid out for co-opting in these cases. But in the vast majority, outside witnesses were sought and the circle of those consulted widens to involve spiritualists, clergy and sceptics alike, all bringing their specific ideas into this mix and something they have a personal reason for believing in. Now I hope you have found the exploration of the poltergeist as interesting as I have when researching it. They don't seem to be treated with the same kind of reverence as other ghost stories. They are irrevocably wound up in the messiness of human life, representing fascinating snapshots into regular people's lives as they try to lead a normal life amongst confusing and escalating threat and annoyance. It is testament to just how done with it these people were that they're littered with tales of people threatening these entities as they just try to set the table or wash the dishes or any manner of mundane everyday tasks. They're tales that are often forgotten, as with very few exceptions, most of the stories are as rigid and repetitive as any average human life, with the same low spots of heartbreak surrounded by long stretches of everyday averageness. Honestly, I love them. I think they have so much charm to them and are so deeply human and enmeshed with the complicated facets that are human existence. They are absolutely laid with doubt and hope and self-delusion and the fallible nature of memory and how we perceive the world around us. It is helpful, I think, to give a name and a shape to the mundane annoyances that grind us down form the less than glamorous aggressors of our daily lives. If that name is Philip or the Black Monk, it doesn't matter. I think it's something that we all need in our lives, a mostly harmless poltergeist. Thank you for sticking with me to the end of the poltergeist story. Needless to say, but this was not an exhaustive survey of the topic. What we know and what we think we know about poltergeists will continue to grow and change, and I look forward to revisiting this topic in the future. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.